Listener Production. As the death toll in Gaza pushes past 10,000 this week, there are growing calls for the fighting to stop. But what's it going to take? What will Israel need to achieve to stop their attack on Hamas in Gaza? If their mission is to completely destroy Hamas, the organisation behind the attacks of October 7, well, will this conflict ever end? How could it possibly end? In this episode of The Briefing, we're going to speak to an Australian former ambassador to the Middle East who spent 50 years working in the region on all sides of Israel. The two-state solution is the ideal, the neat solution, but nothing in the Middle East is ideal and nothing is neat. First, here are today's other big headlines. It is Wednesday, the 8th of November. Hey guys, Katrina Blowers here. Interest rates have now climbed to a 12-year high, with the Reserve Bank raising the official cash rate by 25 basis points, which means that it is now 4.35%. The Independent Reserve Bank has taken this decision today uh, in the interest of this fight against inflation. Treasurer Jim Chalmers there stressing the independent part. Nothing to do with me, uh, says Jim <laughs> Chalmers. Now, if fully passed on by the major banks, the increase will add around $100 to the monthly repayments and they're calculating that on an average $600,000 home loan. Uh, I guess we'll know more, Tom, on Friday when the RBA is going to be releasing some more details of the trajectory it expects inflation to take and um, a bit more insight into why they decided to move for the 13th time. Yeah, well, you gave the number there for, you know, what that specific increase will do to a $600,000 mortgage. But if you look at, say, uh, the median house price in Sydney, which is $1.4 million, all of these interest rates combined will mean that uh, a person with that size mortgage will be paying almost $3,000 more a month. $3,000 extra a month on top of an already big mortgage. So that's how much it's hurting people in you know the big expensive cities like Sydney and Melbourne, people with big mortgages. So that's concerning. We get a bit of a sense of why she made the decision from the statement they put out yesterday. As you said, we will learn more, but it said, inflation has passed its peak, but it's still too high and proving more persistent than expected a few months ago. So that's one of the key lines from the statement. People are wondering, well, A lot of that inflation was caused by uh, petrol prices, rents, insurance and electricity and uh, sort of jamming households harder is not going to affect any of that and it all comes at a 12-month lag anyway so we haven't seen the impact of the whole 4.25% increase in interest rates so far. So it's getting tough for households and a lot of questions being asked but overall the consensus was... Michelle Bullock had to do something here. And there's been a big moment for King Charles. He's delivered his first King's speech. It is mindful of a legacy of service and devotion to this country set by my beloved mother, the late Queen, that I deliver this, the first King's speech, in over 70 years. Yeah, he had to lay out the plans of the uh, government, Rishi Shunak's government. Uh, One of them is a bit awkward for King Charles. Um... He's well known as a greenie, King Charles, but he had to announce uh, more oil drilling. And um, as he said it, no flicker of emotion, not even a stutter in the King's speech as he announced it. This bill will support the future licensing of new oil and gas fields. 
helping the country to transition to net zero by 2050 without adding undue burdens on households. Do you think he's sounding posher and posher as he gets older and further <laughs> into the job? Well, he's certainly looking a lot posher because when he when he read this speech, he was sitting on a golden throne mm. uh, and he was wearing a crown with almost 3,000 diamonds wow. encrusted in it. Uh, yeah, big, big moment for Charles. Mm. I actually love all that pomp and ceremony. I don't know why, but I'm just like, just... Just go for it. I don't know. It speaks to some <laughs> deep, deep tradition. Um, yeah, there in England, and um, yeah, there we go. We'll get, we'll get you a golden throne to read the headlines <laughs> from, Tom. <laughs> no thanks. Well, Albo has gone viral on Chinese social media thanks to a video of him walking through Shanghai wearing a Matilda's jersey and a Rabbitohs cap. The clip even made it as far as China's premier, Li Chang. Uh, people were saying that uh, we have a handsome boy coming from Australia. Um, I think I'll let that one uh, go through to the keeper. <laughs> Handsome boy, our Prime mm. Minister. I'm sure um, his partner Jody would agree with that. So this caps off three days of talks between Albanese and China's top brass. The visit showing some really positive signs on trade, which was much needed. Uh, also climate change and visas. Yeah, it sounds like the elbow charm has worked on this trip in China. Um, you know, he's got that sort of disarming, relaxed vibe. The news portals that were reporting on this um clip going viral, they said, uh, here's one of the headlines, Australian Prime Minister surprises, interacting with passers-by is amazing and the sports t-shirt is super cool. Another one said, rekindle the friendship between China and Australia. The Prime Minister's morning run um, immediately made passers-by feel friendly. And uh, that quote there from the Chinese Premier, it almost sounds a little bit condescending, handsome boy, mm. but I think that that is the essence of the elbow charm that you... You sort of, people almost underestimate him and they feel instantly comfortable with his open, welcoming vibe. Well, and interesting too, because if he is seen in that sort of larrikin, cheeky kind of way, then potentially there's room there for him to be a little bit stronger in some of his assertions or some of his language without it coming over as offensive, perhaps. Mm, yeah, potentially. Um, I guess that that is important. Behind closed doors, when they get serious, he has to be able to make our case on really important issues from trade to even things like human rights, which are much more difficult to bring up with China. But this does sound like a really successful trip and he's laid the foundation to at least be in the room and able to have those sort of conversations. And the $8 million Melbourne Cup is over for another year with WA jockey Mark Zara riding without a fight to victory. Zara won the Melbourne Cup last year on Gold Trip, the Caulfield Cup on Without a Fight two weeks ago. And then yesterday's Melbourne Cup, what a massive 12 months. Without a Fight is the first horse in over 20 years to win the Caulfield Cup Melbourne Cup double in the same year. Yeah, what an amazing result for Mark Zara. Two Melbourne Cups in a row um, and on different horses. So that was really interesting and a difficult choice for him to make. But he's backed Without a Fight and uh, obviously made the right call. Incredible result. 
Yeah, I wonder how many people are going to have very sore heads this morning going to the office. I was uh, shooting a story for Channel 7 yesterday on the cup celebrations around Brisbane and a lot of people asked me not to film them because they'd called in sick to their bosses. (laughs) (laughs) When are we going to make that a national public holiday? I don't know, maybe the Melbourne Cup's (laughs) declining a bit in popularity and that won't ever Mm. happen, but you sort of got... Melbourne having their public holiday, most people taking the Monday off, so a big four-day weekend. The rest of the country sort of sort of taking, pretty much taking the day off or the second half and a whole bunch of people just getting on with their, their business. But, yeah, some people calling yeah. in a bit sheepish and um, probably keeping their heads down at the desk today. All right, we'll catch you soon, Katrina. I'm about to go deep with the former ambassador to the Middle East. All right, to our briefing on the Israel-Hamas conflict and how it could possibly end. Our guest has a lot of insight and experience in the Middle East. Bob Bowker was a career diplomat there for 40 years. His first posting was back in the 70s. He's been the ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Syria, Egypt and Jordan. He's worked with the UN in Gaza and taught Middle Eastern politics at the ANU in Canberra. Bob, thanks for joining us on the briefing. My pleasure, Tom. As we all try and work out how long this conflict's going to last and how much more blood will be shed, do you think it's any use to look at the previous outbreaks of violence between these two parties? Or is there just no useful comparison, really, to what we're witnessing now? Well, we've seen frequent clashes between Israel and the Palestinians, and particularly in Gaza, but rarely have they gone on for more than a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, This current conflict is completely unprecedented in terms of its scale uh, and the consequences that are going to flow from it. So for the immediate destruction to stop, and there are growing calls for a pause or a complete ceasefire, would Israel need to make that decision to stop? Is there any other way that it stops or is it Israel that has to come to that point? I don't think there's any prospect of external parties, be it the United States or uh, Western voices generally, having much influence over what is now for the Israelis a a military campaign. Uh, It'll depend on the political decisions of the Israeli government when this ground assault will come to an end. And there's no sign of that at the moment. Okay, that being the case, what do you think Israel would need to achieve or what gains would they need to make from their point of view to even consider stopping their attacks? They clearly intend to uh, remove any remaining uh, leadership of Hamas, uh, either directly and physically obliterate them or uh, force them to leave under some brokered arrangement with Gata or, or others. But it doesn't address the real problem, which is that Hamas is without any doubt the best organised political force uh, within Gaza. And uh, a military campaign won't stop the return of Hamas in some form uh, once the fighting ends. So do you think they need to completely wipe out Hamas before they stop bombing Gaza? And is that even possible? I'm certain that it is not possible to wipe out Hamas. Hamas is better organised, more effective in its 
capacity to mobilise support among organised groups within Gaza, such as the teachers or the medical workers, it is part of the fabric of Palestinian society in Gaza. And unless you actually uh, push the population at large out of Gaza, which is not a serious prospect at this stage, although people worry about it, unless that wholesale expulsion of the population is what Israel has in mind, then we will be back in a situation where the only effective administration uh, in Gaza will be uh, under the influence of Hamas or its sympathisers. So does that mean there's no way out of this? If, if you're saying Israel want to destroy Hamas, but Hamas is intrinsically meshed into Gazan society, there's no way of this conflict stopping without the complete destruction of Gaza and these roughly two million civilians. That, unfortunately, is the conclusion that uh, many of us have reached. Uh, Mm. uh, And obviously, uh, we would wish to see this conflict end now because as a political objective, uh, it is unworkable. It's an unwinnable conflict so far as the ultimate uh, objective of eliminating Hamas is concerned. The pathway to defeating Hamas lies in ending the Israeli occupation of Gaza and giving people in Gaza an opportunity to enjoy a level of economic security and well-being that puts the ideology of Hamas uh, and its cruelty and its authoritarianism in a defensive position rather than it being seen as the symbol of resistance to the Israeli occupation. But we're completely deadlocked, aren't we? If Hamas is set on destroying Israel, how could the Israeli government justify, especially given what they demonstrated on October 7, showing them the sort of mercy or giving them any of that space that you just talked about for the way Gazan civilians see the role of Hamas in their lives? Like, is, is there any way to break that deadlock? I want to be absolutely clear about this. Uh, The actions of Hamas on the 7th of October were evil. They were despicable. They were a war crime against Israelis generally. And no one should be in any doubt about the long-term aspirations of Hamas to see Israel disappear altogether. That is an absolute given. But the uh, reality is that Israel and Hamas learned to live with one another reasonably effectively after the Israeli withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Although there would be periodic flare-ups, basically uh, it was a situation with which both sides could live. And I think if the destruction of Gaza stops at this point, Uh, There may, in due course, I'm not saying when, but at some stage, we could see a return to some sort of predictable relationship between Hamas and Israel. But the way things are headed, that's not on the cards. We've got 10,000 dead. 4,000 of those dead are children. If you applied that proportion to the United States, it would mean 1.5 million dead Americans 
and 600,000 dead American children. No society can cope with that sort of trauma. So the UN and a number of other countries have joined a long list of people calling for a ceasefire. There was uh, a UN Special Assembly vote on this and it passed, but Australia abstained. Why did we abstain from that? Well, the government's position was that the resolution you mentioned uh, failed to identify Hamas and its horrendous behaviour on the 7th of October in calling for a ceasefire. And uh, for that reason, the government felt it was obliged to abstain, as it said, with a heavy heart. But beyond that, there was also a practical political issue. The Prime Minister had just been in uh, the United States working very hard with the US administration and Congress and others uh, to win support for very important Australian objectives, practical objectives in regard to AUKUS and so on. And it would not have sat well, I think, with the Prime Minister to have flown in the face of uh, what the Americans uh, clearly regarded as a highly sensitive moment for them uh, on uh, Israel and Palestine. So there's a combination, I think, of the two factors, uh, an unsatisfactory resolution from our perspective and the short-term needs of the moment at a diplomatic level. So this call for a ceasefire, clearly, I think any human being would would want to see the, the halting of, of all these deaths, especially of children and civilians. But beyond that basic human level wish, what's the strategy of that ceasefire? How would they see this conflict ending in a way that satisfied either of the parties in a sort of a sequence of events that would start with any kind of immediate ceasefire? I think if we can get to a ceasefire, there would have to be some form of interim administration, which uh, would probably involve the United Nations in some form. It is, after all, going to be the UN agencies like UNRWA that will uh, have the primary carriage of restoring education and health and and social services and so on. Uh, And the World Bank will probably need to be involved as well. But the larger question is who would have political authority uh, in the event of a ceasefire? And uh, frankly, at the moment, uh, it is very difficult to see what sort of arrangement uh, could be put in place in Gaza uh, that would be sustainable. Hamas has made it very clear that it will not tolerate an externally imposed administration in Gaza. Uh, The Arab states, like Egypt, certainly don't want to become the occupying power of Gaza. They know that that would not be supported in their domestic audiences, and in due course, uh, their people would come under attack uh, in Gaza. So, frankly, uh, we may see a situation where Uh, a very disorganised group of local militias and uh, local groups and gangs become the effective authority over much of Gaza with the UN trying to deliver programs in that very complex and difficult uh, situation. So you've written that you believe the two-state solution, which is what a lot of people pin their hopes on as a way out of the longer-term intractable conflict here, You've written that you think that's dead, and I think ultimately your predictions 
goes even beyond that, that these cycles of violence will never end. They'll continue. And for a while, you write that Israel will win those fights, but eventually they won't and the reckoning will be terrible. So what are you actually envisioning here, Bob? That they'll be destroyed by the Hamas supporters and, their, and the like or whoever comes next? I spent most of my career promoting uh, to the PLO and at various times to the Australian government the importance of pursuing a two-state approach. But over the last decade or so, uh, circumstances in the region have changed to a point where it is no longer credible to believe that there would be sufficient political will on the part of either Israel or the Palestinians to negotiate to a successful outcome on such issues as refugees and Jerusalem and borders and settlements um, that would be essential to making a two-state solution meaningful. So we are now looking at the fundamental question, who is going to be in control of the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean? At the moment, in effective control, let's leave aside the question of whether there are states and so on, but in effective control is a Jewish government of Israel. If uh, we are looking 10 years from now, the question will be, is that an appropriate uh, outcome for the people of that single geographic area? Uh, Is it to be Jewish or is it to be democratic? And I think the a uh, majority of Australians even now uh, would believe that it would be better to have an outcome which saw equality and democracy and respect for the rights of everybody apply in that geographic area rather than accepting that a Jewish minority should continue to exercise control over the daily lives of uh, the population as a whole. I guess the two-state solution was possibly a bit neater or simpler than that because what you're describing there sounds very, very difficult. Well, the two-state solution, as I said, uh, is the ideal, neat solution, but nothing in the Middle East is ideal and nothing is neat. From any realistic prospect, uh, two-state is as dead as mutton. If you want to put that in the in the nice language of diplomacy, it's once again an idea ahead of its time and a long way ahead of its time. Bob Bowker, former Australian diplomat to the Middle East for four decades, and he had a very grim prediction there, firstly about the future of Israel, but also, as part of that, the two-state solution, which the West has championed for years. He's saying that dream now is completely over. Listener.